Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 250. Nice big round number. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, joined as always by Dr. Liza Dunn, physician, toxicologist, all around smart lady that's going to answer all the questions. How are you today, Liza? I am well. How are you? I am terrific. Thank you for asking. Uh, This week, though, you got to do something that very few people do. And you spoke at Harvard about the ethics of crop biotechnology, which is a very sexy sounding uh, uh, topic. So, so tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, it was a Harvard Bioethics Council, and it was really, really um, a great opportunity to talk to people about some of the issues surrounding, you know, biotechnology and modern agriculture. There are a lot of misconceptions about it. A lot of physicians are actually driving some of the misconceptions about it, and so. Um, we had a great uh, discussion. Uh, Professor Insu Huyen, uh interviewed me, and we talked in great depth about it. Um, and then there was a public Q&A session afterwards, um, and it was really interesting to hear people's questions and things like that. And I think that it was reassuring for people to know that, you know, the scientific advances in agriculture are really, really contributing to food security um, and and. Uh, helping um, get rid of malnutrition globally. And uh, so it was fun. It was really fun. And it's recorded. So I'd encourage people to go back and uh, listen to it at some point. Uh, It's the Harvard School of Medicine Bioethics Center. um, And it's the Museum of Science. So yeah, maybe we can post it on the podcast for people to come. Yeah. Look. Yeah, let's we'll boost it and let's put it on Twitter. So people can find it. I think because we talk about this all the time, it just seems like common knowledge. It's secondhand. But then you go speak to an audience like that and you go, oh, yeah, this is sort of esoteric for a lot of people. You know, they might read a news story about it or something, but they just don't hear a lot about how it works and why we use it, especially from someone, you know, of your expertise. So I think that's awesome that, that you're getting out there and doing that. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. So we'll post it. Go check it out. Uh, it's always good to learn stuff. Liza's got lots to share as well. But uh, let's get into our stories. We've got three, as always. So first up, anti-GMO groups take page out of anti-chemical, anti-BPA lobbies book targeting the black box of endocrine disruption. Always a, a lovely topic. <laughs> the next up, we've got the, uh, the Washington Post. Uh, sucralose aspartame stevia, why the use of sugar substitutes is rising as questions mount about their impacts on diet. And finally, if a viable herbicide was discovered this year, farmers couldn't use it until at least 2035. And we're going to explain why. Very, very important topic, uh, as as always there. Okay, so first up, this is a original story from GLP. This was by a great science writer named Andrew Porterfield. Highly recommend his work. It's always spot on. Very, very easy to access, but also... Uh, in depth and really, really addresses the relevant science. So go check out this story when we're done with it. But he's talking here about a, a chemical called BPA, and I'll let Liza, as a toxicologist, explain what it is and if there are any risks associated with it. But it's used in the production of all sorts of plastic products. And there was, a, there is still a campaign, there has been for, I guess, decades now, by a very select group of researchers and activists warning the public about exposure to BPA. And it's been associated with all kinds of problems, ADHD, autism, uh, obesity, diabetes, just anything under the sun. If you can find a disease that people get who also use BPA, there's a study finding that there's an association between those. Um, So Andrew talks about the fact that uh, the same people who attack 
the uh, plastics, um, in many cases, it's the same group of people that attack uh, crop biotechnology and pesticides. But even when it's different groups and different individuals, they're using the same playbook as the title of his story alludes to. And of course, here the big concern is endocrine disruption. Again, that's another fancy term that Eliza can explain. Um, but Andrew very nicely and with with uh, relatively few words goes through and just summarily debunks the silliness here around this topic. So if you're concerned about exposure to BPA and if you go to um, any store that sells a flask or a water bottle or anything, it'll and chances are you'll find one that says BPA free and then they'll charge you next extra $12 for it just uh, <laughs> to protect your health. Um, I was at the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, last year took our son there for the first time, which is really cool. And they're all in on the, um, the anti-plastic crusade, of course, except for the PVC pipes running through the roof that send the water <laughs> around. Right. Right. But in the gift shop where you can buy uh, an aluminum water bottle for $40, they're glad to tell you that it's BPA free. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, exactly. So I'll exactly. stop talking. Maybe you can just explain as briefly as you can. I know it's a deep, deep topic, but what is BPA? Why is it used? Should people really be worried about it? So BPA has been used since the 50s um, in plastics and in epoxies and a whole variety of different uh, uh, products. And basically, it adds uh, some stiffening in some cases. It, it helps line cans and a variety of other uh, things. And it's it's useful for present, preventing things like botulism. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, it's it found in all sorts of polycarbonate plastics. It's, it's found in a lot of stuff. But it's one of these chemicals that has been looked at um, it, it, it's very well studied, very well understood, um, and it's provided um, a lot of ability to, for um, food preservation and things like that. Um, and once again, people have gotten very, very nervous about uh, very minute exposures to this. And it's funny how all of these minute exposures to whichever chemical du jour is there um, apparently cause all the diseases in the world. <laughs> and then when you actually, and, and so, then, so there'll, there'll be a study, there was a study by a, a Ryan, I, I don't remember if his first name is Paul, it's from 2009, um, who th did a very, very, very thorough study looking at BPA. And it was a study that the researchers who had initially found a quote-unquote association for endocrine disruption um, and suggested that there be further rigorous research. This was a rigorous study that was put together and showed that there was no association whatsoever between BPA and, and endocrine disruption. And the, the vast majority of studies agree with this. And these are well, uh, well uh, uh, designed, very rigorous studies. And so one of the important, thing, important things about the scientific method is that if you establish some kind of association and you think that it might be worth researching, and then that association with subsequent testing and over and over and over testing cannot be re replicated, then you might want to adapt your thinking about the science. You might want to say, well, we have done the testing and it shows that my hypothesis was initially 
not correct. <laughs> and that's the point of duplicating studies. And if you can't duplicate studies, and this is where um, GLP studies, so studies that are conducted are, are conducted under good laboratory practice, which are studies that are designed by regulatory agencies, the protocols are, uh, companies that are putting a, um, a product on the market, we can talk about this for the last piece that we're going to talk about too, um, the, the, the but the protocols are very, very well defined. Um, the assays are audited. The, the testing is audited. Any adverse reaction is reportable by law to the regulatory agencies. And the reason why they do these studies so thoroughly is because you want to be able to replicate them. Um, and because if you replicate them, then that means that they, they're valid. Right, and so you want to find consistency throughout your studies. So you, the the way the activists do these studies is they have a hypothesis, and then study after study after study uh, does not demonstrate refutes their hypothesis. And so then the hypothesis should be, or, the, or that the conclusion should be that there is no association between BPA exposure and endocrine disruption, just like there's no association between glyphosate exposure and endocrine disruption. Um, a whole variety of tests have established that. And the problem is that when it starts being taxpayer dollars that are going into these studies over and over and over again, and then there's a media hype about it, um, people take out very valuable chemicals from um, the public uh, off the market. And uh, it really, really, uh, it, it's a lot of science-free uh, claims that cost a lot of money and cause people to uh, uh, higher taxes and things like that when money could go somewhere else. Very, very important point. Wasted resources, wasted time, wasted anxiety on the part of uh, consumers, especially parents freaking out about this. And it's interesting, it's almost always a disease or a disorder that affects kids. Or, yes. or at least it starts in childhood, right? So you can say, oh, you know, BPA, endocrine disruption, autism, right? It just, it's it's geared to scare parents. And that drives, yeah. drives me nuts to know. And let, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, before I... I have a little philosophy, right? So there's a, there's something called apophenia that they, they talk about in this article, right? And that's a, the tendency to see patterns or a common mm. thread in uh, unrelated things, right? And it's like reading tea leaves is the way to think about it. And it's neurologic... <laughs> <laughs> disorder. And so I, I think that a lot of, a lot of, I don't know how to say this without, I don't, I don't mean to offend anybody, but children are so well these days. They're not dying of infectious disease. They're not dying of, uh, you know, really, really preventable vaccine preventable illnesses right now. Um, and I think that there's a focus now um, in certain physician communities to try and look for more and more and more granular things to address. Um, and by doing so, they get people very, very nervous. So, so, I, so I think that it's um, you, what people need to understand is that what it, the things that are causally associated with a developmental delay are, are malnutrition <laughs> and diseases like botulism. <laughs> you know? So, and we know those things and, and removing the things that can prevent those things from happening because of these increasing fears of minutia um, is, is really 
problematic. So I think we need to kind of reevaluate why we're so scared of uh, things that have been on the market for decades and have been very well studied. A couple more details uh, to add here. And uh, I want to quote the FDA because they are um, regulation happy. Their job is to regulate things. So if they get an opportunity, they like to regulate things. So if there was a problem with BPA, I think the FDA would be among the first groups to say there's a problem with this. So when you go to their website, this is directly on their website. You can go see this. They have a Q&A. And the first question is, is BPA uh, safe? And, and, and this is strange from a regulatory agency. They say yes. And then they go on to say, studies pursued by FDA's National Center for Toxicological Research have shown no effects of BPA from low-dose exposure. And then they go on to discuss what's called the Clarity Core Study, which was published in 2018, 223 pages. It's, it's very exciting. It's like Lord of the Rings. You'll love reading this thing. <laughs> they, they studied every aspect of this. They gave BPA to rats in different doses. They've looked at all the epidemiological literature, uh, and they're just saying, look, there's, there's nothing wrong with this chemical that we can find in the doses that people are exposed to. Um, there's all kinds of really uh, fascinating study designs. So they've done studies looking at cashiers that handle uh, receipt paper all day because receipt paper is made with BPA in many cases. Mm-hmm. So people that handle this, they're exposed to it. It gets into their systems. No problems. They give uh, rodents enormous doses of this chemical to try to find neurological mm-hmm. or reproductive uh, damage. They can't find it. And then there's studies, and Liza, maybe you can speak to this too, but when you, when you look at people who are exposed to BPA, they metabolize it and eliminate it very, very quickly from their bodies. And mm-hmm. just this is, should be common sense, but if, if it's not clear, if the chemical doesn't stay in your body, then it can't cause any damage in your body, mm-hmm. right? Yep, a, that's it. Right, that's the takeaway. Right. That's the exact takeaway. There's a little toxicology yeah. for everyone. So <laughs> whatever you want to add, Liza, please. Yeah, no, I just think that, it, well, it's it's like uh, it's like beating a dead horse to death. Reading regulatory research is, uh, to steal a, a Mark Twain quote, is, is like chloroform in print. <laughs> and somehow chloroform in print is not as inspiring as uh, fear in the media. So we need to figure out how to translate that chloroform in print to, (laughs) to a more persuasive, like a more, a more understandable message or a message that people will, will, will read and go, Oh, I can be reassured. (laughs) Yeah. I'll get our, I'll get our producer on it. CJ, when you look at this, you need to come up with a little jingle, like BPA safe, dude, to do. Well, we'll come up with something and then, uh, we'll, we'll put it on here. Maybe that'll work, but I don't know. I, that's the bottom line. Uh, I'm a dad. I have two young kids. I have a young kid and another one on the way. Liza has kids. We don't want our kids to get sick from plastic. If there was something wrong, I would have no problem to say this is bad. Don't be exposed to it. But there's there's nothing wrong with That's that. That's exactly right. There's nothing wrong with this. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we'll move on. I don't want to want to talk too much longer. But the reason we use plastic to uh, store things, particularly food, as Liza's alluded to several times, is that little nasty microbes get into your food and make you sick and kill you. So we don't want that. Um, and of course, there's almost a billion people around the world that don't have enough to eat. So if you can keep food yep. fresh longer, you can transport it further. You can give more people access to affordable food, healthy food that doesn't make you sick. That's a win-win. That's why we use it. It's not because uh, companies are evil and they want you to uh, to be sick, right? There's actual legitimate reasons for using these products. Companies like customers. The more customers, the better. <laughs> yes. Right? right? So that 
So, yeah. Yeah, so poisoning them is bad. That's the, the baseline yeah, of a business model is, uh, yeah, don't make them sick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Okay, so let's move on here. Let's talk about uh, what might be... Um, no, it's not the worst, but it's not a good story from the Washington Post. <laughs> this is, uh, and it's one of those articles where, like, there's a there's pretty graphics in it, and then you got to scroll to actually read the article, and it gives you like sixty word little bits. Sound bites. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, it's a strange world we live in where people can't just read a news article. But uh, I'm getting older every day, is what I'm saying. So this is by um, Anna Hedo Cotter, Aaron Steckelberg, and Laura Riley writing for the Washington Post. It's called "How Fake Sugars Sneak Into Foods and Disrupt Metabolic Health." Again, with the met- <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> metabolic health. No, not that. So, okay. All right. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to summarize the stories before I attack them. So they go through and they say that um, sugar consumption is uh, declining. And part of that is because people are more aware of it. But there's also this new FDA label that allows companies to put healthy labels on their foods. But if there's too much sugar in it, they can't put a healthy label on it, which means they can't market it as a healthy food. So one of the ways they're getting around that is they're adding artificial sweeteners um, like sucralose, aspartame, stevia. There's a bunch of them, right? They all say plant-based on them now. (laughs) And there's always beautiful (laughs) cookies that you can actually make at home on the packaging, you know. Um, But but, so you can buy them in in packaging and add them to food, but then they're also found in all sorts of pre-prepared and packaged foods that are in grocery stores. Um, and this is supposedly a problem, and they, they go through all the typical arguments. They talk about how um, it messes with the receptors in your brain that detect sweetness, and so it triggers you to eat more sugar because your brain thinks that there's more calories coming. Then they talk about, of course, everyone has to. They talk about the gut microbiome, and then it causes inflammation, and then that leads to type 2 diabetes, and it causes obesity, and Right, so they they basically outline all of the risks associated with these with these um, additives without actually giving you the context for all that research. I think that's the biggest problem I had with the story, Liza. Um, but yeah, take take it away. What, what did you think of this? Once again, this is like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what's going to stick, right? <laughs> it's it's so there's too much sugar and stuff. So let's so companies come up with a. a, a an alternative and oh my goodness that's going to be a terrible problem let's do all sorts of research on it and so hundreds of millions of dollars have been thrown at this <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars will be again and you know people like to enjoy their food and if they enjoy their food in moderation um and if you do you know it, You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You'll be fine. Um, you know, there are very rigorous studies looking at people who um, do drink diet sodas and things like that, um, and they do are associated with a decrease in weight loss. Now, people go, oh, there's an epidemiologic study that shows that there's an, a, a, an association between obesity and diet soda drinking, so they, that must be a ca- causal thing. Well, has it occurred to the people that are making this claim that maybe – those people started out as obese and are trying to address their obesity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're drinking diet drinks. So that they're sort of forgetting the basic rules of epidemiology here. You have to have temporality, right? You have to start out with a skinny person drinking diet soda after diet soda after diet soda and see if they're getting fat if you're going to wind up having making that association. You can't start out with a fat person drinking diet soda and say,
saying, see, I made them fat. (laughs) And that's what a lot of these studies tend to do. So the obesity claim you hear all the time, uh, the gut microbiome, that's going to be the, you know, sort of catch all thing. If you drink alcohol, you're going to affect your gut microbiome. Alcohol kills, it kills bugs. If you drink Whatever you eat, your gut microbiome is going to respond to it. If you take an antibiotic, it's, it, you're going to do something to it. But it adjusts, right? So it, 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 it's, a, um, it's not a static thing. Some things are going to cause inflammation. Other things won't. It's, it's, it's using these as a reason for um, not having low-calorie sugars out there available for people who actually like to enjoy life like diabetics um you know it it it, it, it's it's not fair to those people and so yes everybody should be living and and you know nibbling on carrots and celery (laughs) um and not enjoying anything because enjoyment of course is a you know is is not not a good thing this is this kind of goes along with my when people want to legislate about this kind of stuff, especially if there's a lot of good data that th- these products don't cause harm, then I sort of think about um, this. And as, as C.S. Lewis's quote of tyrannies, have you? I've, yeah. I may have said this on yeah, the show from before. Yeah, God in the Dark, excellent book. <laughs> yes, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under. Omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. <laughs> this has a little bit of that. Whatever you do, don't eat anything sweet. And then, and then to make it worse, the food companies all have this labeling. Battle. And so before you know it, there's stickers all and labels all over everything. And you've got low fat candy and you've got, you know, a whole variety of ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in passing, because they, they take a swing at uh, uh, processed food in here. A lot of the mm-hmm. organic and non GMO products that we are told by the same reporters to eat and in the same physicians, right? These are often very highly processed foods. It doesn't make them bad. doesn't make them um, um, uh, empty of nutrition because that's not true. But they are still nonetheless processed, you know. So believe it or not, you know, the little plastic packages that you buy your organic food in, those don't grow on trees. Those have to be manufactured in a nasty, stinky factory somewhere that uh, none of these reporters live by, <laughs> you know. So... Just, just want to say that in passing. But, but in more, in, in, to be more serious for just a second, there is a ton of research on on this question, as Liza um, mentioned a minute ago. So, this is from uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is just from a couple years ago. It is a, it's a meta analysis. They looked at 17 clinical trials. There's almost 2,000 overweight and obese people in these studies, and these are interesting because they start with overweight people. Um, and then they watch them. They say, okay, we're going to just, the only thing we're going to change about your diet is the amount of sugar, right? So no regular soda with substitute in diet soda or some equivalent. And then we just follow people for weeks or months or years. And what you find on average when you do studies like this is people lose about two pounds. Their blood sugar improves. Uh, all the biomarkers related to obesity and metabolic health approve, uh, improve. Not very much, but a little bit. What, what you would expect from switching out um, sodas. 
So all that to say, there's all these interesting hypotheses about your gut microbiome and inflammation and uh, the receptors in your brains and blah, 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 blah. When you look at the clinical data, people lose weight and nothing happens to them. They lose a little bit of weight and then, you know, they don't start shoveling donuts into their face because they're, <laughs> they're right because their metabolism is overstimulated with a desire to eat. Or because your- they've done something to a brain receptor and they're unable to control themselves. Right, right. It's, it's. You know, you know what I mean? So, so these ideas are cool. And if one of them pans out, then people should be aware of it. But it's never happened, right? It's going back to that point about replication you made just a few minutes ago. So there's 17 studies. So if you can dose a rat or lots of rats with uh, aspartame and you go, look, right, you know, it grew a third arm because we gave them 800,000 pounds of this stuff. I don't care what happens when people eat it in real life in realistic doses. That's, exactly. that's the key. That's the key here. Um, the, the, the other just final aspect we can talk about maybe is the way that they set this up and these reporters, I just don't like the media. I'm sorry, everybody. They go on and on about misinformation and how you shouldn't be bamboozled by misinformation. And don't believe the, (laughs) don't believe those crazy kooky theories that are all over social media, stick to the experts. And then they publish stories like this where the framing is, here's all these smart independent scientists over here and they agree with us and they say these sweeteners are bad. And then there's the industry people and they just want to sell their cookies and they're going to sell you as many cookies as they can. (laughs) Even if they have to lie to you and poison you, just buy the cookies and shut up. You know, it's like, it's just a silly, ridiculous story and that's the framing and all whatever throughout. you do right. whatever you do don't trust the experts at F- fda right. is what that turns into right so trust the fda on some issues and don't trust the fda on other issues hey guys come on yes it's well and it's a very good point and the reason that i really get concerned about this is this is just one step away from carrie gillum land because in carrie gillum yes. environmental working group land Companies are bad, but FDA is bad because FDA is captured by the companies. Same thing with the EPA and the USDA. And every, right, anytime there's an issue, it's big bad industry buys off the regulator. And that's why you can only trust this reporter who just happens to be in the pay of trial lawyers, right? She's the only one that's going to tell you the truth. Um, But the Washington Post and the Time, New York Times, and all these places, they want you to more or less, at least they say they do, they want you to trust the federal bureaucracy that regulates food products and um, medicines and so forth. But they're making the same argument, and it's, in some cases they're, they're citing the research and they're citing the work of the activist groups who don't want you to trust the federal government. See what I'm saying? So, in other words, while you're saying, trust what the FDA says about COVID shots because they're the experts and they've looked at the data, and then the next day you write a dumb story about sweeteners, you go, those FDA folks, those are bad news. Those guys... Right, they've been captured. You know what I mean? So, the grocery stores came and got them. Right, right, right. <laughs> or the food manufacturers. That's came right. And got that em. sweet old lady that rings up your groceries. She's actually a scumbag, and she's. <laughs> 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 I'm just and those and those scientists, those regulatory scientists that are once again. Mm-hmm. Chloroform in print. Mm-hmm. They aren't. They aren't as persuasive as Washington Post. Sadly. Sadly. Anyways, so yeah, just just when you read the Washington Post or any media, even us, right? Just a grain of salt, a flat of salt in this case, you know, just look up what they're telling you because they're almost always not telling you the full story. Just click on the links. If there's links, read the links. If there's no links, uh, then just just you're probably being bamboozled. 
Anyways, yes. okay, I could go on as as everyone can can imagine. We're done. Let's talk about this final story. <laughs> this is from a, a great website. If you like to uh, follow uh, agriculture, if you want to learn more about farming, just the like the basics of it, the practicality, the issues that farmers are dealing with. Good good website to go to. Um, this is by uh, Dwight Ligenfelter, and he is an extension scientist, I want to say, at the University of Pennsylvania. So, again, someone you can trust to talk about pesticides. But uh, here he's talking about what, what's preventing new herbicides from coming on the market. So we've talked ad nauseum on the show about glyphosate and paraquat and these different chemicals that farmers use to control weeds uh, on their farms. And he points out here that it's been about 30 years since there's been a new active ingredient um, that's been brought to market. And, of course, a lot of people have asked, well, why is this? Can't you just make another herbicide? Because, you know, the ones we have are effective, but, you know, there's herbicide-resistant weeds, and some of them are expensive, and some of them have, um, you know, there's there's downstream impacts that aren't always great in some cases. Um, and so he's going through and he's saying, well, here's all of the issues that uh, that don't prohibit necessarily, but they delay the development of uh, new herbicides. And so, Liza, maybe what we can do is just go through some of these and you can elaborate on the mm-hmm. points he makes because they're really, really uh, helpful. And so the first, and, yeah. the first and obvious one here is pretty simple. He says it's just hard to do. And the, the statistic, mm-hmm. I, the, I wasn't aware of this, but he says for every 150,000 molecules analyzed for pesticidal properties, only one may have the potential to be taken to the next stage of development. Not to be commercialized, but to just go, oh, this might be something worth pursuing. So talk about That's talk about that. Why is it is it just we're just limited in how we can analyze these different molecules or what's going on here? So no, that's it. You want to have a molecule that you can screen for very specific toxicity um, that's not going to have environmental uh, impacts and stuff like that. So there are whole there's a whole bunch of steps that you have to take to get there. Um, and you have this whole bevy of chemicals. And by the way, pharmaceutical companies are in the same boat, mm-hmm. right? So when they're when they are in the middle of discovery and they have a bunch of let's say you have a chemical that looks structurally like another chemical, right? You might go, oh, th- this may have some of the same biologic activities if you're a plant or if you're an animal or whatever. So they'll look at the structure and the function of those things um, and then try to see how it interacts with receptors and stuff like that. So you have to go through a large database of chemicals to compare them. And that's often in silico. So they'll look that up as a, in a computer as a database and things like that. And then they'll pick out a several different um, uh, possible potential uh, beneficial uh, chemistries. And then you've got to do your whole battery of uh, hazard assessment where you do very rigorous testing, GLP testing like we talked about before, um, uh, in, in vitro and then in vivo and then, you know, eventually field studies. And, and the whole process takes 10 sometimes 15 years to complete, and you have to do it. You have to pick the, pro, the the chemistry that you think is going to be the most efficient out of several different candidates. So it's very long process, and it's very hard to sort through, um, and it's very expensive. And the, well, I can say more about this in the end, but if you finally manage to jump through all the regulatory hoops that you need to to establish safety, and you get something on the market that's and it's launched, um, and it's got a history like glyphosate, for example, and then all of a sudden, science-free claims completely 
in, you know, really, really impact uh, your license to operate your ability to use this, then, you know, then people are going to be very hesitant, especially knowing that this is the most studied and probably the safest thing on the market. It's, you know, safest thing on the market for in the herbicide category. Um, it's most well understood chemistry out there. There's no incentive to go through all of that time and expense and energy to have it completely turned around on the back end. Let me uh, share my screen if I can. This is a new platform we're using, so this might break everything, but let's just see. Hopefully, uh, no, it's not going to work. Dang it. Okay. I, wa I wanted to show everybody the EPA has on its website. I've referenced this before. It's an EPA pesticide registration manual. Speaking of chloroform in print, oh my yes. gosh. So since you can't see it, I'm just going to say there's 25 or 21 chapters <laughs> talking about the different aspects of getting a pesticide registered or approved by the EPA. Um, each one is, it's just like a massive PDF. And then there's, uh, there's, uh, examples of registrant documents, a, um, pesticide form overview table, super exciting. <laughs> and then examples of completed forms. There's like, so basically there are 24 chapters <laughs> of just, yes, 24 chapters just, of just red tape, which, and I think that red tape's important because it actually is, is for the safety of people, right? It's, people are interested in safety. I think it's really important for EPA to be, you know, establishing a very rigorous safety code, um, and we abide by those. So the scientists and companies actually read all 24 of those <laughs> chapters, and they actually do the testing according to those 24 chapters, and they know them backwards and forwards and inside out. So that says something remarkable about the people who are in regulatory science and in, in the EPA and FDA and USDA and the scientists and companies who abide by the rules that these folks set for them. They have your best interest at heart and they want to make a product that will improve the lives of many people, right? And so um, they do all this reading so you don't have to, but feel free to read it. Yeah, I think I figured it out. I, can you see my screen right now? Oh, yes, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is what this document looks like, right? It's all yours. You don't, you don't got to go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon. They'll just let you download it for free. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly right. That's it. And I don't know if I want to click on one of these because I don't want to spend eight hours to... There you go. Oh, no, it's in. Oh, look. So look, I mean, this is just like, I'm already bored. And I've only been scrolling for like two seconds. Just like blah, 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 blah. Uh, responding to issues. But it's it's like an instruction manual for a bed or a piece of furniture. But it's like 8,000 times long. longer. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it takes 10 years for people to get through this whole thing with the actual one chemical that they're studying. So... It's um, and like I've said before, it never before in the history of mankind have we have had have we had access to such an abundant and safe food supply, mm -hmm. um, or abundant and safe medicines. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really important not to, to not to fall for the um, drumbeat of hysteria that some of these articles, uh, you know, go for because you really uh, undermine the innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people that raise money by scaring everybody, they don't make anything. That's all they do. They professionally scare people so they can raise money, so they can scare more people, so they can file lawsuits, so they can raise more money. It's wash, rinse, repeat. That's all they do. 
You know, mm-hmm. they don't have to spend mm-hmm. time figuring out how chemistries work and figuring out medicines that make people better. They just and the scientists that work in these companies, if they saw, if they see something that the, the company's working on in the, in the pipeline that they think is actually going to be a problem, they'll they'll have no problem pulling the plug, even if it's late. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen this happen. They will pull the plug if they think that there's a it's a problem. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. There's uh, re- read the whole article. I don't want to spend too much more time going through it because we've been uh, we've gone for a while. But he he goes on and talks about it has to be practical to use, right? It can't be like you know, if you touch it, you're going to die. <laughs> it has to be easy. No, has yeah. to be easy to use. It has to control a wide spectrum of, of weeds. It can't just be for, you know, a couple of weeds that aren't a big deal. It has to be used on commodity crops. If it's like specialty crops that not a lot of farmers grow or that don't have a lot of market value, there's no point in really. You have to pay back the research and development fees. So you got to make it, you've got to, you've got to have a return on investment. So. Yeah, I don't know if you mentioned the figure, but it's something like $300 million is what he says in here. Yeah. 10 years, $300 million. Mm-hmm. It's just absurd. So there you go. Go read this article if you want to understand why you know, there aren't as many uh, chemistries online as maybe we'd hope. There are some in development, which is cool, um, but we'll talk about that another day. So uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us as always. In the meantime, we are on X, Twitter. Twix, whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> at, at Dr. Liza MD, at CamJ English. Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Go subscribe uh, to their email newsletter, which is on their website. Go follow them on Twitter. They put all this content out. They give us this platform to, to speak our minds. So go follow them. They make this all possible. And with that, we will see you next time. Have a great week.